You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thanks, Aaron. You may be seated. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. Um, it's a joy to be able to worship with you, to sing praise to Jesus. Now we're going to get into God's Word now. Um, one caveat before I get going, just so you know, um, it's been a, a busy weekend, so I was unable to get the Scripture text on the screen. So if you have your Bible uh, or if you got your phone, how are you going to look at God's Word? We, we'll be honing in on like Ephesians 1 and then into Ephesians 3. So if you just hang out right in that area, uh, you'll be able to track pretty good. Uh, there'll be some other Scriptures that I bring in, but if you just keep your thumb right in that area, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, um, you'll be able to track pretty well. Now, as you know, we're, we're back into this sermon series, A Union with Christ. So that's been a massive focus. We're talking a lot about what it means to be in Christ. The topic du jour for today is that the mystery made known not only leads to union with Christ, but it brings together the most unlikely collection of people. Most unlikely collection of people come together because of Jesus. There's unity between us, the church, because of our union with Jesus. Without Jesus, everything falls apart. Think about that right now. Without Jesus, what are we? How do we relate to each other? Maybe we have some common interests or whatever. But it's only because of Christ that such a diverse people can come together and be united. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of that this afternoon. So I'm going to briefly pray and ask for God's help. And then I'm just going to open up the scriptures. My goal is simply just to be a Bible teacher and lead you to the water so that you can drink. Heavenly Father, I need your help. By the power of the Spirit, I want to speak clearly. And Lord, we, we, we want to see what you have already spoken. So we come underneath your word knowing that it is indeed without error. We come to your word knowing that it is sufficient to, to inform us. And we, we are needy and we need help, not only to understand, but also apply. Because we know that our understanding is not disconnected to how we live. So we trust that the spirit that is at work in all of us will be instructing us in these next few moments. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you consider the ministry and purpose of Jesus, what immediately comes to mind? Like, think about your general Bible reading. When you consider the ministry and purpose of Jesus, what comes to mind? First thing I thought of was Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. His most famous sermon. My head went there for some reason. What about the immense compassion Jesus demonstrated to the poor, the sick, and the needy? Oftentimes, when Jesus demonstrated compassion, a miracle accompanied. Do you think of that? You would be in good company if you make a beeline to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The gospel. You'd be in good company if you think of that immediately. It's one thing for Jesus to be a great moral teacher, even a miracle worker, but to show the world he is the Son of God by forgiving sins through his atoning death and then rising from the dead. We're talking about next level stuff. There are times when I think about our Lord when my mind gravitates to the day he comes back. 
when Jesus will come back to complete his mission of redemption and restoration. So there's a lot we can say about the ministry and purpose of Jesus just by reading the Gospels. Perhaps one of the most undervalued distinctive of the ministry of Jesus, which is a theme in the entire New Testament, is the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. I don't think we think about that often because we're all Gentiles. I don't know how many Jews you know, but I don't know many. We've already kind of been folded in, you know, 2,000 years later. But at the time, it was actually a big deal. If you read the New Testament, you know there is a dynamic between Jew and Gentile, but do you grasp the power of the gospel to overcome this gap that exists between these two groups of people who otherwise, without Jesus, have absolutely nothing in common? The chasm between Jew and Gentile is deeper and wider than the Grand Canyon from a Jewish perspective. Disassociating with Gentiles was, was baked into their religious cake. You just don't do it. You don't hang out with those guys, those Gentiles. So, you can imagine a religion that cre creates an us-versus-them mentality also creates prejudice, prejudices excuse me, and unjust stereotypes. As it is with any generation, from any part of the world, human beings create walls between themselves and other people. As Christians, we have to be mindful and careful to not fall into the same trap as many first century religious Jews. These unjust stereotypes create walls and division. Like, here's an example. Identity politics is an excellent example of one group of people pitted against another group of people for political purposes or for personal gain. We see it right in front of us when we turn on the news. A lot of what we see right now in the news is going on in the first century. What makes the teaching and ministry of Jesus revolutionary is that he knocked down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile. The wall between Jew and Gentile was wide and high. Jesus, the Son of God, was sent into the world to share and demonstrate the message of, of salvation for all to hear, thus bringing walls down. They just come crumbling down. When we consider the Old Testament, it is true God chose Israel as his people. But Israel took their eye off God's mission of redemption for the world. I mean, even before Israel was a people and a nation, God says this to Abram in Genesis 12, because this, this impacts what we're seeing today. This is what God said to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and to your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the line I want you to hear. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. So through Israel, first Abraham, and then Israel, all families of earth will be blessed. When Jesus arrives on the scene, the Jews wanted their families to be blessed. But they did not have an eye toward all the families on earth, the Gentiles. 
Jesus came to provide the necessary course correction. And if we are honest, there are times where we need course correction. Sean Powers needs course correction. We can be so concerned with with what is right in front of us that we lose sight of God's great plan of redemption going on all around us. As we go from Genesis 12 to the life and teaching of Jesus, we now read in Ephesians, Paul picks up where Jesus left off. The purpose of Paul's ministry is to take the message of salvation outside of the Jewish religious walls and to the Gentiles. Paul is clear in Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Not only is Paul an advocate for the Gentiles, but even in prison, Paul has a massive burden for these Gentiles living in the city of Ephesus, the church that is at Ephesus. Paul suffered so the Gentiles in Ephesus would know Christ. Certainly Paul is a prisoner of Christ in like a metaphorical sense. We have seen time and again in Ephesians, Paul believed God owned him, right? But we also know Paul writes to the Ephesians while in physical chains from a Roman prison. I think it's worth reflecting, for a moment at least, it's a few minutes, that there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. I do, I do not want to dis- dismiss the sacrifices American Christians have made while following Jesus. In God's providence, li- literally in God's providence, and his sovereignty, we are all living in the most free and prosperous country throughout all time. That is undeniable. If you deny it, you just don't know your history. The Apostle Paul would not have known this kind of political freedom that we experience in America. Nonetheless, are you willing to be a metaphorical and physical prisoner for the sake of following Jesus? Just because we experience relative freedom does not mean the question should not be pressed. Because you never know, you never know when it all will change. It could change like that. I understand you and I are not the great Apostle Paul but you and I are a son or daughter of God like Paul. And Paul believed that the cost of following Jesus meant sacrifice and suffering. His sacrifice and suffering was undeniably connected to his calling to take the the gospel message to the Gentiles. Following Jesus costs something. If you were to jump in your car right now, you just get on 35 and just put the pedal to the metal, start driving north, Eventually, you got to get off 35, take a different road, but you can get to Canada. Maybe you go through Ely. You can get to Canada. In Canada, right now, in Canada, pastors are being set, sent to jail for holding church services. In Can- Canada, Canadians are so nice. That's literally happening right now. Now, I'm not privy on Canadian politics. My fam- familiarity with Canada is hockey stop there. That's about it. But for over a year and a half, Canada has maintained tight COVID restrictions and has put churches and pastors into a difficult position. Should they obey God or man? Acts 5 verse 29. 
Canadian police are showing up to churches. They're arriving at homes of pastors, taking pastors to jail in front of his wife and children. It's all recorded. You can go Google it. You'll see it all. And why are they being dragged to jail? Because good pastors have a deep conviction that God's ways are above the ways of the Canadian government. So perhaps you're in the camp that because of COVID, these pastors should obey the government. I'll respectfully disagree at this point. What we can agree upon, I hope, is that these pastors are being taken to prison for following Jesus. At the very least, we can, we can agree upon that. Okay, perhaps the situation in Canada is a one-off. Surely this is not the case throughout other countries that are, quote, free, end quote. Yesterday, I was, as I was preparing for this message, I read a Newsweek article, like newsweek.com, about how a North London pastor of 35 years was thrown into jail. His crime? He preached from Genesis 1 that God created two genders, male and female. He said that marriage was between a man and a woman. From the accounts that I read, he did not use any homophobic slurs. He simply preached the Bible. That's what he did. You know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of flags. I almost took these down, and that one, and that one. I kept them up so I could say this. We have brothers and sisters in places like China. Flag right there. We're going to prison for following Jesus. So whether it's a place like Canada that we perceive to be, quote, free, or a place like China where Christians are undeniably not free, people are going to prison for following Jesus. Paul was not in prison because of COVID or for preaching God's design for marriage from Genesis 1. But he was put into prison because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was put into prison because he preached into the issues of his day. He confronted the issues of his day. What was the issue of his day? God's plan of salvation is for Jew and Gentile. Big deal. That was a big deal in the first century, but he preached into it. God has made known his plan, along with all the implications of his plan. Paul had received and revealed to the Ephesians the revelation that believing Jews and Gentiles are of one body, and now he is, he is suffering the consequences of declaring that particular revelation. Here's the crux of what Paul was preaching. Before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if a Gentile wanted to follow the God of the Bible, he or she needed to convert to Judaism. That's what needed to happen. But now, after the cross, Gentiles do not need to become Jews. Jews do not need to become Gentiles, but both become one new person, the church. The playing field between Jew and Gentile has become completely level. Level. The standards and means of salvation is equal. The entire Old Testament had been leading up to this great inclusion of the Gentiles into God's family. So when you start in Genesis, and you start making your way, and you finally get to the Gospel of Matthew, the entire Old Testament has been leading us to this moment. The inclusion of the Gentiles into God's family. Being a part of God's family requires that the mystery of the Gospel, this mystery that Paul keeps talking about, be made known to the human heart. 
The mystery isn't made known by practicing the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the mystery is made known to the human heart. We've already bumped into this idea that God, in his good timing, has made his plan known. In Ephesians 1.7, we read, in, in, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And now we read in Ephesians 3, verse 3 and 4, the mystery was made known to me, me being Paul, by revelation. As I've written briefly, one can assume, if, if he's saying I've written briefly on this, there was a previous correspondence Paul had with the Ephesian church. Nothing that we have, but it seems to indicate that here. And in verse 4, when you read this Ephesian church, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery revealed to Paul is being passed on to the Ephesians. Before talking about the particulars of what has been made known and what is being passed on, I want to explain how we should understand the mystery of the gospel. And it is this mystery many Jews and Gentiles missed. So I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard me say something to the effect in the past, we read about the gospel in the Old Testament, right? I've said that many times, many different ways. We went through the book of Acts that just came up over and over again. David was talking about Jesus, you know. Prophets were talking about Jesus. If the gospel is in the Old Testament, how come the gospel is called a mystery revealed in the New Testament? You ever thought about that? Like, if I keep saying the gospel's in the Old Testament, huh, the gospel's in the Old Testament. But now we're reading like it's now revealed in the New Testament. What's going on? The answer is that our perception of mystery is different from a New Testament understanding of mystery. In the New Testament, mystery has a theological significance of the unveiling of that which was previously hidden in God and unknown to humans. In other words, it's not the acquisition of knowledge by diligent searching, but the unveiling of facts intrinsically hidden in God. Think of it this way. You could have a, a, a classics Greek professor at the University of Iowa who's way smarter, way better at dealing with New Testament Greek than I am, right? He could, he could parse Greek verbs like a boss. Intellectually, he's just there. He's, he's above everyone else. However, for him to know God and all of the implications, it takes God to reveal the gospel to him. It takes revelation. We, we read that word, revelation, all, all over the New Testament. And really... Revelation is a distinguishing mark between Christianity and many other faith traditions. God reveals himself to you. And how does God uplift the veil of mystery? Yes, God uses people to preach and declare prophecy. But it says in verse 5, it is, a, it is ultimately by the spirit in which the mystery of the gospel has been made known. What exactly has the spirit made known. It says in verse 6, there are three specific areas the Spirit has been made known to Gentiles. Again, these are worldview-shattering ideas. Jews and Gentiles would be rocked by what Paul says in verse 6. Here's what God's Word says. The Gentiles and you are fellow heirs. Rob had mentioned that earlier. That's number one. Gentiles and you are of one body, and you're also partakers of the promises. In Ephesians 2, Paul said the Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's chapter 2, verse 19. 
What the entire book of Ephesians makes crystal clear is not only the power of the gospel to save, but also the book of Ephesians tells us the particulars of being saved. It's not just, I get saved and therefore I'm not going to hell. It's like, no, you've been saved and look what else you get. Look at all this. Ephesians tells us what it looks like for a bunch of people who originally had no business of hanging out, coming together and being united. Let me, just an honest moment. And maybe you, you do want to hang out with me if we didn't have Jesus. I don't know. But really, why are we united? It's Jesus. Why do we hang out at each other's houses, community groups, come together to church, have a meal together? I mean, you're all nice people. Don't get me wrong. But what ultimately unites us? If it's anything other than Jesus, it will eventually fall apart. We are united because of Jesus. Let's look at these three concepts laid out by Paul that speak toward the nature of our unity. Paul says the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. To be an heir means to legally be in possession to receive property or even rank of another's, of another's on the person's death. So parents create a will outlining their, what their children will inherit upon the time of their death. During the time of Christ, property and societal status could be handed down from one generation to the next. Well, what do Jews and Gentiles who make up the church inherit? First, we point back to all the spiritual blessings from Ephesians 1. What are we inheriting? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing. Where do those spiritual blessings come from? The heavenly places. Ephesians 1 is a great place to start when you want to talk about what you have inherited and will continue to inherit. I also think there's a futuristic or eschatological angle here about, about being an heir. There will be a day when you will inherit heaven and you're, and you're, with, you're with Jesus. You inherit heaven. You'll see him face to face. You'll see more fully the depth of God's love and grace for you when you're in heaven. I mean, that sounds really good. From a Christian perspective, what else would you want to inherit, right? What else? Would you rather have gold? With the inflation, gold sounds nice. <laughs> a nice house. Would you rather inherit what is perishable? Or would you rather inherit what is imperishable? Now, this point also distinguishes Christianity from other faiths. Without Christ, a person is left with the insatiable desire to inherit what is physical, what is tangible, what I, what I can touch and feel. When a person is in Christ, he or she looks to Jesus as their inheritance. Here's how the Apostle Peter talks about Inheritance. It's from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Again, he, he starts out the way that Paul does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A great way to start talking about God. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So at this point in verse 3, Peter's like straight gospel, straight gospel. And then he pivots in verse 4 and he starts talking about inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept where? Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be, to, to be revealed in the last time. What you have inherited and what you will inherit because you are in Christ cannot be touched by this world. That gold, it'll melt. That money, it'll burn. But all the spiritual blessings of Ephesians 1, what about those? Nah, they are yours forever. Christian, you're not an heir because you were raised in the right home. You are not an heir because you have the right religious pedigree. You are not an heir because you said the right prayer using the right words. You are not an heir because you chose to come to church today, although all of those are good things. You are an heir because God in his grace and mercy set his electing love upon your life. You are an heir because God said, you are mine. That's why you're an heir. So that's the first concept raised by Paul in verse 6. Jews and Gentiles together are heirs if they are in Christ. The second concept Paul uses to describe how Jews and Gentiles are in Christ is the human body. Quite physically, the human body. The Greek word Paul uses for body, sus somas, uh, is not found before the New Testament was written, and it is only found here in the New Testament. Now, the word somas is body in Greek. That's all over the New Testament. But then he adds this prefix, sus. means with body or in body. That's, that's unique. And we only find it here in the New Testament. It's possible Paul coined this word to help describe the relationship between a diversity of people in the church. He's like, God, I got to figure out how to describe all these people coming together who are different in the church. Oh, I got words to sum us. <laughs> so it means that Jews and Gentiles are of the same body. And it's a body whose head is Christ. The growth of the body depends on the head who is Christ. And each member of the body functions dependently of the other members of the body in order to contribute to the overall growth of the body. Think about what this means for you and me. Very simply stated. We need each other. We need each other. Each appendage of the body is important. If you are a foot, you matter to God and you matter to others. If you are a neck, you matter to God and you matter to others. Every part of the body has value and is able to contribute to the whole. So, what part of the body are you? If you don't know, I want to encourage you to pause and just reflect on that. I really want you to dial into what I'm about to say here. In this room, in this small church, every single one of you is significant, is important to God and to one another. You have abilities, gifts, perspectives, and talents that contribute to the whole. Do not think for a moment, do not think for a moment that you have nothing to contribute. That is patently false. You have something to offer. 
We are in this thing called the church together. Here's an analogy of what it looks like to be of one body. Somos. I love team sports. I grew up playing team sports. Let's take baseball as an example. In baseball, there are nine defensive positions in the field. Each position in the field is vital and contributes to the overall success of the one team. When a player is injured, the entire team is affected. If a player, say the pitcher, is having unusual success in his role, the entire team is affected. Even those in the dugout, the coach, the trainer, the bat boy, the backup players, they're all valuable to the one team. There is no insignificant members of the baseball team. When I was in high school, I uh, played basketball. It's a different sport, but team sport. And uh, we were number one in the state. Um, I hardly played. I played a little bit. That's called garbage time. But, but I can tell you that every guy in that team would say, Sean Powers, even though he doesn't play much, is still a valuable member of the team. There are other things I had to contribute, say at practice, encouraging other guys, cheering them on. Everyone on that team was viable and had something to contribute. If you want to learn more about what it means to be a member of one team and one body, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 12. The gist of Paul's point in that passage, which corresponds well here with Ephesians 3, is that because we are one body, there is no division between one person and the next in the church. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. Like, we're not going to cut off the hand. That would be division. That's not how that works. No, the hand stays. Hand might be bugging you right now, but the hand stays. No division is unity. Further, our unity to one another means if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Go back to my team analogy for a moment. Teams win together and they lose together. If one player is hurt, the entire team feels the pain. The same is with the church. We're all in this together. You know, it might not be the team that you have personally picked, but it's the church family God has given you. Foreign to the Bible is a homeless Christian. Christians are not to live independently from God or God's local church. And so the concept of being one body should inform your perspective and participation in the local church. Jesus went at great lengths, namely he died on a cross, so that we would always remain united. So that we would be one body. All right, that was the second concept Paul lays out. We're all one body. Third one, we're all now partakers of the promises. Paul says Jews and Gentiles are partakers of the promises. We see in Ephesians 2.12 that Gentiles were strangers to the covenant of promises. Went over that a few weeks ago. And because they were strangers, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. It seems the Old Testament covenants are in view here. So we could go back and talk about the Edemic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And really, we could go through all those and really tease out how God has always been faithful. God has made promises through his covenants and God will always follow through on his promises. That's one of the points being made here. The church, the new Israel, is the beneficiary of God's promises. 
Remember, a major point Paul makes and and why he writes from prison is that there is no Jew and Gentile. There is only Christian. It does not mean you don't have like a background or a heritage, an ethnic background, or, or your skin color changes all of a sudden. No, none of that changes per se. But what does change? That you are one in Christ. And because you're one in Christ, it levels all those other things that may make you distinct. The mission of God is to bring together all kinds of people into one family who can look at the promises of a Messiah, the promises of redemption, and the promises of a future registration and say, the people of God, we are the people of God. And God has been faithful to fulfill his promises, and God will continue to be faithful to fulfill his promises. One area worth pressing for the moment is that believing in the promises of God requires that you trust God. So you read that in Ephesians 3, 6. And the question then becomes, do you trust God for what he has promised? I, I pro- let's, say, let's say, for example, I have promised my girls I will take them to Chick-fil-A this week. Then they are going to trust me to fulfill what I have said, right? Now, I'm a flawed father, and girls, I'm not publicly promising to take you to Chick-fil-A this week. However, there is a heavenly father who has declared great promises, and he is batting 1,000% when it comes to fulfilling his promises. So trust him. We see in verse 6, the promises are yours, Christian, so continue to trust him. So what has God, the Holy Spirit, made known? All God's people are heirs. All God's people are one body. All God's people are partakers of the promises. In part, this is the message Paul preached, which ultimately landed him in a Roman prison. He spoke into the cultural issues of his day by preaching the gospel, by preaching the Bible, and that led him to chains. I want to end by tying together Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 6, with the next several verses, which I have not touched up to this point. When you continue to read into verse 7 and following, the theme continues. First, the plan of God to bring together Jew and Gentile has always been a part of God's eternal purpose. Like, read that, you read that right there in verse 11. This has always been a part of God's plan, his eternal plan. It is Christ and Christ alone who brings people from all tribes, tongues, and nations into one family. Universally speaking, God has and is still at work bringing unity into places of division. I mean, I want to say this aloud and clear. You cannot pursue lasting unity through the traditions and the philosophies of the world. That's Colossians 2 verse 8. It is through Christ in which Jew and Gentile can be together. It is through Christ in which all other divisions we experience in this world where people can be reconciled. I mean, I'm going to resist the temptation to call out all the things right now, but they're out there. Different philosophies saying, no, this is how we bring reconciliation. Different ideas saying, no, this is what we need to do. If you're truly after unity, you seek Christ and Christ alone. What else do we read in these verses following verse 6? It is through the church 
that the manifold or um, many-sided wisdom of God is made known. Ephesians 3, verse 9 and 10. So Paul receives revelation from from God, that's verse 2, Ephesians 3, about this great mystery made known. And then Paul says, it's now up to the church to continue to preach the gospel so that people of all shapes and sizes might be saved and adopted into God's family. That's you, all of you. It's up to you. God wants to use you. That's what he's encouraging the Ephesian church. It's like, I got, I'm, I'm sharing this with you. Now, guess what? Guess what, church at Ephesus? Take the baton. Take the baton. Preach the good news. So God has entrusted us to continue the ministry of Jesus and continue, and continue the ministry of Paul. If our participation leads to ridicule, so be it. If our participation leads to prison, so be it. Church, we have no reason to ever be afraid. But we have every reason. Every reason. Because of what he promises in terms of inheritance, namely Jesus. We have every reason to hope and trust in God. Let's pray.